Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. There is a manipulative quality, seductive quality, deceitful quality to this character. It is fascinating. Hi, I'm Dr. Paula Bruce. I'm a clinical and forensic psychologist in Beverly Hills, California. I've been in practice for over 20 years, and I'm going to be talking today about a bunch of movies and trying to understand the characters, trying to understand the psychology behind the characters, and hopefully talk about it in a new and interesting way. With the spotlight this week on the unprecedented and somewhat bizarre indictment of Donald Trump, turning himself in to be arrested on charges of illegally funding to conceal his affair with a porn star. There is plenty to talk about on the show, including forensic psychologist Dr. Paula Bruce's take on related questionable stuff going on in movies. Criminal or crazy, coming up, along with a CNN legal analyst on the Arts Express hot seat about this as well. But first, from rebel cop to righteous whistleblower, deep dive political analyst, Pacifica host and contributor to the show, Garland Nixon, pondering, when you discuss politics, how do you figure out what's going on? I try to think of myself as an alien that was dropped on this planet. Good evening. My name's Garland Nixon. All right. I'm going to start by saying this, you know, people, you know, one of the things that people discuss is, you know, when you discuss politics is how how do you figure out what's going on? How do you look at things at what's going on? Garland, why is it? What do you, what do you think about this situation and how do you figure it out? This is the way I one of the things that I try to do. And I've said this to people before. I try to think of myself like an alien that was dropped on this planet. I'm not male or female. I'm not black or white. I'm not American or Russian or Inuit Eskimo. I'm not Democrat or Republican. And a lot of people say, well, you know, are you in a party? I was a Democrat for many, many years. But I got to a point where I realized something. You know, oftentimes where you stand on an issue is based on where you sit. And if I'm sitting in one of the two parties, then guess what? I'm going to have I'm going to some of the things that's going to color some of the things that I say. You know, if you want to paint, if you and, and I and to me, politics and things like this, it's, I'm very creative and this is my art. This is my version of creativity and art. And in order to paint a picture, what do you need? You need a blank white easel. If somebody hands you an easel and it's got color all over it and painting all over it, you're going to say, I don't want this one. Give me one that's blank. I can't draw anything on. I can't make a piece of work if somebody else has already messed up my easel. I don't even want smudges on it. I want it nice and clean, right? That's the way I try to do politics. I try to take myself out of it. I don't want good guys. I don't want bad guys. The way we are manipulated in American politics, I don't know, I don't. maybe all politics, but way, the, one of the ways we're manipulated is... Villains and heroes, villains and heroes, villains and heroes. Here's a villain. Here's a hero. And the people that want to manipulate you are always going to say they're the vil- they're the hero, and the other guy's the villain. And you know the history of America. Hey man, how you doing? Oh, those communists are evil. Really? Who else? Oh, Saddam Hussein's terrible. Oh, who else? There's Bin Laden. He's out to get you. Oh, really? Assad. There's always a villain. There's the Putin. Gee, there will always be a villain, and that villain will always be evil. And a an, a villain implies a hero. I don't if you tur- if I if you start watching a movie and you see some evil guy doing things right you don't have to guess that somewhere a hero is going to come into the movie and save everybody or do something good. You'll never find a movie that doesn't have that that has a villain and no hero or a hero and no villain. If you see the hero first, you know there's a villain. Come. It's like, man, that's a great guy. He's got a cape. He's flying around saving people. You know there's a bad guy coming around and he's going to have just as many powers as the villain and it's as the hero and he's going to fight the hero and at some point it'll look like the hero's just going to lose and just before he loses he'll somehow regain his strength you know the game and then he'll defeat the, the villain at the end and he'll get the girl and blah 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 right you know the game and the people who manipulate us the people who uh want us to go along with things that are not in our best interest they know the game too so they're gonna hand you a hero 
and they're going to hand you a villain. And here's the way I try to understand it. When someone asks me a question, do I know more than just the superficial basics of things? I don't know how many people I've had say to me, yes, you know, fill in the leader of a country. He's an evil dictator. And I say, oh, really? Oh, an evil dictator? Absolutely. The prime minister of so-and-so country is an evil dictator. And I'm like, hmm, interesting. It just happens that the CIA argues that he's an evil dictator. But I'll say, so tell me. A little bit about this, Tim. Uh, what's his background? I mean, how, dict- how did he come to power? Who does he dictate over? What are some of the terrible things that he's done? And I get, uh, uh, he, um, he, uh, dictator, it's a terrible thing. They don't know. They don't know. Think about it yourself. Right now, I want you to think to yourself, the leader of any country that in your mind, you know he's an evil dictator. And if I was to bring you on the air right now and say, tell me about his evil dictator stuff in the background, how much could you tell me? Because he, he, the, the reason propaganda works, the, the way you know propaganda works, is when somebody believes something that's propaganda and they think it's their own idea. And the way you find out is you ask them more about it. So tell me about this. And it happens all the time. Because, you know, one thing about, like, and what do they train you in law school? Never ask a question if you don't already know the answer. And never ask a question if you don't want the answer. <laughs> right? Don't ask questions if you don't know the answer and or you don't want the answer. Right? So when you take a position on something, Ask yourself beforehand, do I know the answer and do I really want the answer? Because all too often you research something and you find out you don't want the answer. What happens if you're in a crowd of people and all the people believe X? Everybody believes X. All your friends, your family, everybody you know believes X. And part of being a part of that crowd is believing X. That if you really didn't believe X, you'd be thrown out of the crowd. If everybody came in and one day and you walked into all your friends and you and they all said, you know, X is true. And you said, actually, I think it's Y. They would say, you're out of here, buddy. You can't hang with us. Don't look into whether X is true because you don't want to know. Because what happens if you look into whether X is true and you find out that it ain't? And now you run into all your friends and all your friends who all believe this same thing, but they didn't really look into it. And you did. And now you find out that something that all your friends believe. Oh, no. And guess what happens if you go to your friends and they all say, you know, Garland, did you know about X? And you go, ah, uh, yeah, guys. Um, you know, I, I kind of been looking into X lately and. It's really why. They don't want to hear it. They're not interested. Do you think they're going to be like, hey, you know, we're relieved to find out that it was why. Thank God somebody finally cleared everything up and told us it was why. No, they're not. Because they don't believe X because it's true. They believe X because it feels good to believe X. Because that's all they know that's X. Because everybody around them agrees that it's X. But God knows if they find out that it it ain't X. They got a problem. Let me tell you a a, a true story. Years ago, girl I was dating many years ago lived in a small town. And a member of her family, could have been a father, was at that point a member of a particular political party. I won't say which one it is. It don't matter. But all the people in that town, all of his buddies and all of his friends were members of another party. And guess what he did? He faked like he was a member of the party that all of his friends was a member. His kids knew it. His wife knew it. He voted for the other party. But when he went in town and hung out with all his buddies in a small town, he pretended like he was a member of the party that all his buddies was a member of. Why? Because he did not want to be ostracized. He did not want them to know that he thought different, that he believed different. So he pretended differently. Because maybe he read something. Maybe he had other inclinations. And he looked at it and said, you know, I don't know. They all believe X. But Y seems to make more sense to me. And we can see that. But when I can see it for real is when somebody believes something and I say, well, you know, how, 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 how about I send you a link on that? And at times they don't want the link. They don't want to read that. They don't want to know that. 
because part of our belief system is based on what we believe. But another part of our belief system is based on our social order, is based on our friends, is based on being part of a group. And that's important. And so what do we do? We break things down into pieces, right? We break it. We, we, we break things down. For instance, but here's what I mean. I have a friend that lives in Beirut and I talk to him and he talks about the U.S. empire and all the terrible things that it's doing to the Palestinians and the people of the Middle East and blah, blah, blah. And if you say to him, the Democrats or the Republicans, he'll laugh you out of the room. The Democrats or the Republicans, ain't no Democrats or Republicans flying that F-18 over there bombing us. Ain't no Democrats over here cutting our uh, 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 money off and screwing us over and sanctioning us. It's the U.S. empire. Now, when we are over here, we cut it up in the Republicans and Democrats and these and that blah, 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 blah. But if you're on the business end of it, it's just one. I'll put it like this. You're sitting at a window and a cat slowly walks by and you say, there's the head of the cat. He walks a little further. You say, oh, there's the body of the cat. He walks a little further and you say, there's the tail of the cat. But it's all the same cat. How would you break that cat into three pieces with words? You used words, you used terms, you use a description to break that cat into three pieces, but you only did that with words. In reality, it's the same damn cat. And if you're sitting outside the United States, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Libya, ain't no Democrats or Republicans. Because you know why? Because when it comes time to vote for the, for the budget, war budget, show me the Democrats or Republicans that standing up saying don't do that. When it's time to say, well, I guess we got to go bomb this other country. Where's the Democrats and the Republicans? We got to su support our troops. So if you're in the business end of that, but yet when they get here and they want your vote and they got to divide it up into groups and they got to divide the cat up into three parts because you might not vote for the head of the cat. You might only vote for the tail of the cat. They divide it up into three groups with words, but the outcome is the same. When you, if you're a black person getting pulled over and the cops running up behind you at three o'clock at night, do you like, I wonder if he's a Democrat or a Republican? Nah, you're like, man, I'm finna get shot. Oh no. Looking around, hoping there's no shiny objects anywhere in the car because you feel like you're done. And he might be a Democrat and he might be a Republican. Guess what? Those brothers that beat Tyree Nichols to get the other way. I bet you they're all Democrats. What you want to bet that those brothers that beat Tyree Nichols to death, the odds are overwhelming they're all Democrats. You think Tyree Nichols was asking when they hit him? Bip, bip, bip. Oh, by the way, which uh, party do you guys belong to? It wasn't no parties on the business end of a nightstick, was it? But we divide that stuff up with our minds because then we'll vote for the Democrats. If it was like, hey, they're beating up brothers. But I ain't voting for them. That's the Republicans. It's all the same cat. That's what I'm trying to say. That's the way I see it. Now. Just a philosophical discussion, just something to make you think, just something to stimulate the brain. That's all. That's all I'm trying to do. You hear the same old propaganda from everyone. You hear the same old divisive terms. We're in this group. No, we're in that group. Believe what? This group is all together. And as a member of this group, we all have to believe that. And then you believe it because even if you find out different, you're not going to want to believe it because it might ostracize you from the group. So here's, well, here's the bottom line. It's critical that... People like me have the opportunity to get on the air. People who are not going to be the same old voice that you hear that gives you the same old, hey, here we are today. The Republicans are bad. No, it's the Democrats that are bad. Oh, it's whoever that's bad that are going to say, use your mind, stimulate your brain, think in a different way than you normally think. See some other possibilities. Right. Put a turn your brain into a blank canvas so you can draw something differently on it than was ever drawn before. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, that's what I'm pushing for it. Thank you, Garland Nixon. And coming up next on the show, turning up on the Arts Express hot seat on this week's show is CNN legal analyst and author Ellie Honig talking about his latest investigative book, Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It, and how the rich, famous, and powerful like Trump and Sam bankman frieds crypto bank fraud manipulate the legal system, which is in effect two systems, the other for the poor. And on the other hand, manipulation 
by the corporate media like CNN as well. Here's Ellie Honig. Hi, it's Ellie. How are you? Hi, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, good. Yep. What about Wall Street? And what you feel, according to what you've written, can be done about manipulating the system there, economically and financially, the Trump indictment, and in the most notorious case right now, the FTX scandal and Sam Bankman-Fried, and how would you solve that case with your own set of skills, hypothetically? So I do write quite a bit in the book about Wall Street and financial titans and the way they've been able to dodge accountability over the years. You were, anytime you were looking to prosecute a, a high-profile or wealthy banker or you know, person in the financial industry, they're going to have the advantage of money. And we all know money can buy lawyers, and our system permits that. And, and I give examples in the book of where people have spent tens of millions of dollars on their legal defense. But there are a lot of subtle tactics that, that Wall Street people use to insulate themselves as well. I'll give you one example. It is a very common tactic, and I actually used to see this in my mafia cases I prosecuted, that the wealthiest individuals will pay for lawyers and provide lawyers not just for themselves, but for other people around them. Now, why? It's not an charity. It's to make it difficult or impossible for those people to cooperate, because if you have your lawyer being paid for by somebody else, it's hard to turn against them. You'll lose that lawyer. You'll lose the funding. Um, now, here's the thing, and I give some examples of that throughout the book. The Justice Department, for a long time, said, we don't tolerate that. And if you do this as a powerful, let's say, CEO, we will hold that against you and count that against your, uh, you know, whether you get credit for cooperating with us or not. In 2008, though, the Justice Department changed policy to where they said, actually, we're perfectly fine with this. And they issued some statement along the lines of, we believe that corporate America shares our same interest in transparency. I mean, I don't believe that. I don't think corporate America does, or it's not their job to share the same interest in transparency as the Justice Department. So DOJ has been has been quite tolerant of this policy, which by its own definition makes it harder to prosecute these kind of crimes. So that's just one example. On the Sam Bankman-Fried case, it looks like they've successfully flipped a couple people against him. The fraud looks fairly straightforward. I can't guarantee an outcome, but he has been charged, which is farther than a lot of these cases go. A lot of times they get worked out for civil settlements, uh, deals with the SEC, that kind of thing. Uh, so we'll see where that lands, but um, he's going to try to pull out all the stops, I assure you. And as a CNN legal analyst, what are your thoughts about some of the speculation that corporations, especially military contractors, manipulate the media, your media, and the news, even CNN? And how would you address that? Well, plenty of people and entities try to, I wouldn't use the word manipulate, but try to influence us, try to give us information. Our job in the media, which I, I know we do an extraordinary job of at CNN, is to sift through those claims and fact check them and see what's, first of all, what's newsworthy, what's worth even reporting on. Second of all, what's truthful, what's spin, uh, what's an outright lie, and, and give people that truth. And sometimes it's various people at various point of views. Sometimes they're not all worth equal uh, platform, but sometimes they are. Sometimes there's an issue where you have people who have reasonable positions, and our job is to explain that and let the viewer decide. And have you ever had suspicions that someone or some entity was trying to manipulate you personally? Oh, I get emails all day, people <laughs> trying to manipulate me. Yeah, I mean, sure, I get, I get people saying, hey, I want to pitch you on this story, and I'll look at it, and it's ridiculous, or I'm not interested. Um, again, I'm not sure I use, use the word manipulate, but People, people rightly, people are entitled to try to manipulate the media, I mean, to try to influence us. We're, we're here. We're open to the public. It's our job to sift through that, figure out what's right, what's legitimate, and what we're interested in covering. Now, there's a saying about the U.S. court system, liberty and justice for all who can afford it. And the title of your new book, Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It, and How the Rich and Powerful Manipulate the Legal System. What do you feel can be done about the inequities poor and disadvantaged people face there? So how do you feel about that, on the one hand, in your professional legal position, and on the other hand, as a frustrated civilian? Yeah, so look, we have deep-seated and long-standing inequities in our system that both disfavor poor people and, and favor wealthy, privileged people. Um, there are, there's plenty that can be done on the first note uh, along the lines of criminal justice reform. I'll give you one example. I was involved in bail reform here in the state of New Jersey, where I worked for a while, where for, for 
centuries, we were locking people up pending trial, and if they couldn't pay bail, if they weren't wealthy enough, they'd sit there rotting away in prison mm. until their trial months or sometimes a year or more down the line. We changed that, and we went to a risk-based system where now whether you get locked up depends on how big of a risk you pose of danger to the community. So as a result, our, our, we are locking up fewer people, um, and our violent crime rates have gone down because the people we are locking up are dangerous people, not poor people. So that's an example. I mean, there's you know, way more on that. This book is largely about the advantages that rich, uh, rich and powerful people have um, I sort of point the finger in a lot of directions here. The courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court, have chopped down some of the laws that we use to prosecute people in those positions, especially public officials. Congress could pass uh, better laws, more powerful laws, but they've declined to do so, maybe for self-serving reasons. Uh, I blame prosecutors as well, even though I was a prosecutor for a long time and I believe in what we do. There's a lot of things we do that come up short. I've pointed to several examples where I argue that prosecutors were intimidated or just didn't have enough spine to take on, or enough creativity and ingenuity to take on a powerful player. And I mean, of course, the, the biggest malefactors are the powerful people themselves who seek to exploit the system in ways that people may not understand fully. But I take you inside prosecutors' offices and try to bring it to light how they do that. And any last word about your book, Untouchable, how it can enlighten the public? I think if you are interested in criminal justice and you want to know, forget about how you know, what, what words it says outside the courthouse door about equal justice. If you want to know how things really work inside courthouses, inside prosecutors' offices, that's what I bring out in this book. And I show you the way that it really works behind the scenes and how powerful people really do get away with it and what can be done about that. Um, for people in the profession, look, use it as a how-to manual. I mean, if a law student or, or a young prosecutor, um, take, take the lessons I learned over 14 years and you will recognize, I assure you, you will recognize some of these tactics. Even now, looking back at some of my cases, I said, oh, yeah, look, look how he tried to manipulate, you know, use his money here to pay for a lawyer to someone else to keep him quiet. Or look, look how he used language here to convey his orders without giving an explicit instruction. So by all means, you know, bad guys do not use the book as a, as a, as a how-to for get, how to get away with it, but prosecutors use it as a how-to for how to contradict that. And what about those like Trump who may read your book to fight guilty charges? Yeah. Um, look, again, it's not intended as a how to get away with a guide for, 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 for powerful people. Uh, I, I hope it goes the other way. Okay. Thank you, Ellie Hunnick, for joining us on the show. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. And Untouchable is published by HarperCollins. And now on Arts Express. Someone's being Hi, this is Jack Shalom, and that was the song Shy from the Broadway musical Once Upon a Mattress, which made a star out of Carol Burnett. That score was composed by Mary Rogers, and of course, that last name, Rogers, should ring a bell when we're talking about Broadway, because indeed, Mary Rogers was the daughter of Richard Rogers, which was both her blessing and her curse. And Shy is not only the name of that song, but also the name of Mary Rogers' 
recent autobiography published posthumously with the help of New York Times theater critic Jesse Green. Well, if there's a major theme in the story of Mary Rogers' life, it is how does a talented daughter get out from under the shadow of a very famous musical genius? The answer most certainly is not by being shy. More like the song, Mary Rogers' autobiography is loud and brash. Her last words at the age of 80-plus to Jesse Green were, make it funnier and meaner, and she has no problem about dishing on all her famous friends. Before I go on, let me give you a little theater quiz which is asked in the book. Before Mary Rogers wrote the music for Once Upon a Mattress in 1959, how many women composers had there been who had written the complete score of a Broadway book musical? Well, I thought I knew a lot about Broadway musicals, and I thought of uh, Dorothy Fields and Carolyn Lee and Betty Comden, but I was wrong. Of course, these women were all lyricists, not composers. In fact, before Mary Rogers, the number of female composers who had written the score of a Broadway book musical was exactly one. Case Swift, and that was back in 1928, a musical called Fine and Dandy. Well, of course, now female composers are commonplace, but the female Broadway composer was practically invisible before Mary Rogers. And the one thing Mary Rogers did not want to be was invisible, no matter how obnoxious she might have been at times. She knew and often dated just about everyone. She went to school with the children of Irving Berlin, and people like Stephen Sondheim, Arthur Lawrence, and Leonard Bernstein, with whom she wrote the Young People's Concerts for 14 years, were all regular drop-in guests and good friends of hers. And she had dated Hal Prince in college for quite a while. And she was next-door neighbors one summer to veteran Broadway director George Abbott. And, of course, Mary also knew her father's two major collaborators, first Lorenz Hart, and then later Oscar Hammerstein, who she called affectionately Aki. And she had a ringside seat for the Rogers and Hammerstein creations as a child. And she recalls her enchantment in the book with Oklahoma and the opening night of Carousel, which she says is probably her father's favorite of his plays. And she tells a great story of how on opening night of Carousel, her father had pulled his back. And so he had to listen to the show in the wings backstage laid out on a stretcher behind the curtains. And because of the thick curtains, he didn't hear the audience reaction. And he thought the show was a flop. And it wasn't until the very end that he heard the audience cheering and giving thunderous applause so loud that it broke through the curtains. And he knew then that the show had been a hit. Mary understood that her father was a musical genius. She loved his music. And she offers some very interesting evaluations of it. With Hart, the music came first. So Rogers' music was free and bouncy as the times demanded. There was no restriction on it. But with Hammerstein, the words came first. And though Rogers was more constrained in the playfulness of the music, because Hammerstein was not a particularly playful lyricist, Rogers could now express more dramatic sweep and thematic coherence in the songs. But there I go again. <laughs> talking about her father, and that was Mary's problem. It must have been hard to constantly hear about her father. She hated being compared to her parents, as most children do, and she rails at her parents throughout the book for being cold and distant. Now, I know it's hard to convey the tone of a family, but it is a bit strange that while she says her father was distant, almost every example in her book seems to show that her father was really there for her at important times in her life. For example, when she was eight years old or so, she set fire to the curtains in her bedroom to see what would happen. Her father ran in and put the fire out by yanking the curtains down and extinguishing the fire with his bare hands. Now let's remember, please, that these weren't just 
anyone's hands. These were Richard Rogers' hands. She thought she was going to get quite a punishment. But what he did was call her in and say, Mary, you see these hands? These are the hands that taught you chopsticks. These are the hands that hold your hands at lunch. And these are the hands that put out the fire you lit last night. And that's never going to happen again. And he never said anything about it again. On another occasion, when Mary had started to get jobs composing children's songs, she came home with a check for $600 for a song she had sold to a music publisher. Well, she was understandably pretty proud of herself, but her father got very upset telling her that she should never sell her rights to a song. Never, ever, ever. Now, as Mary tells it in the book, she sees her father as a meddler in her business. But I would like to think that with a little more hindsight and maturity, she would have understood it as expert business advice from someone who maybe knew a little bit about making money from publishing songs. But that kind of reevaluation of her youthful feelings seems absent from the book and maybe is not part of her makeup. I don't know. Well, it was Once Upon a Mattress that changed her professional life. And that show began as a one-act musical play, which was staged at the Tamament Summer Resort in the Poconos. The guests expected entertainment, and the staff provided a new play every week for them. And Mary spent a summer up there, and she wrote the score to a musical based on The Princess and the Pea, which went over great with the guests. It was only a, a one-act, but Mary and some others brought the script to the elderly director, George Abbott, who had had hits with Damn Yankees and the Pajama Game, and was also known as a brilliant show doctor. But one thing he was not known as was a nice man. He read the script, told them he would only direct it if they could expand the one-act play to a full-length play, rewrite all the songs, and find a theater and producers for the production. Oh, and since he wanted all of the rehearsals to be finished by the time he went off on summer vacation, they had to get that all done in six weeks which they somehow miraculously did. They even lined up a star to play the main role of the princess, Nancy Walker, who you might remember as Rosie the Bounty Paper Towel Lady with the Quicker Picker Upper. Well, she at the time was a big comic star who could sing and dance, and when Mary and the others went back to George Abbott, he read the script, listened to the new songs, and said, Ever the Charmer, Okay, I'll do it. I don't like it, but I'll do it. And I'll forget about Nancy Walker. I don't want a star. I want an unknown who I can make a star out of. And he did. Carol Burnett made her major debut in this Broadway musical, and the rest is history. Now, the rest of the cast did not fare so well under Mr. Abbott, as he demanded to be called. For the role of the Queen, the best audition was clearly given by an actress named Jane White, and for Mr. Abbott, the problem was that Jane White wasn't. White, that is. He refused to have an African-American as part of the show. So Jane White went to some makeup artist friends and had them actually white her up with makeup, and she auditioned again. And there was nothing Abbott could say this time. But she performed every night in the whitened-up makeup. And to make matters worse... Her father was Walter White, who at one time was president of the NAACP. Well, the other story to come out of Once Upon a Mattress is one of the classic zingers against method actors that have been told hundreds of times, but generally without attribution. If you've been on a stage, you've heard this story. The story goes that a method actor asks a director, what's my motivation to cross the stage on that line? And the director replies, the motivation? Your paycheck is the motivation. Well, Mary confirms that that was again the affable Mr. Abbott chastising the juvenile male lead of Once Upon a Mattress. So after that, Mary never had a success on Broadway again, despite trying, which, though she understood, she was not a musical genius like Richard Rogers, though she was talented, and for that matter, even Richard Rogers had had 
Broadway flops. Broadway is a notoriously tough game. And she turned her hand to other things which she was successful at, including writing the very popular young adult books Freaky Friday about a mother and daughter who switch minds. And these were later made into films that were also quite popular at the box office with youngsters. She also served on the board of Juilliard in her later years and helped to administer the Rogers and Hammerstein Foundation, which was the steward of her father's songs and plays, and which incidentally eventually sold for over $200 million. Now, in some ways, Mary Rogers' story is unique. Not everyone has a musical genius for a father. But in another way, Mary's tale of trying to make a life was the story of many women in the 1950s who wanted to have a respected professional life. There simply was just not a trodden path. There wasn't a guidebook. It was a constant struggle to get taken seriously professionally as a woman, and Mary also struggled at times as a divorced single mother to raise a family of six children, including one who had died tragically at the age of two years old. What Mary did do was provide an example to other women composers. And in the 1970s, Liz Suedos and Gretchen Cryer and Nancy Ford were a few of the women who wrote scores for Broadway. And then came many, many more in subsequent years to the point that we don't realize what a rarity it was. And while Mary didn't call herself a feminist at the time, in 1972, while Roe versus Wade was still on the dock being decided by the Supreme Court, she signed a public letter published in Ms. Magazine stating that she had had an abortion and believed others should have that right. It might have been her finest moment, and it certainly was the act of someone who could never, ever be called shy. I've been talking about the autobiography of Mary Rogers written with Jesse Green called Shy. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. up on Arts Express, Paris correspondent Professor Dennis Bro with Dispatches, I Fought the Law. I'm your host, Dennis Bro. I'm a journalist, novelist, educator, and media critic. Our first segment is called Dispatches, and today's dispatch is The Invaders, Alien Beings from a Dying Empire. This is I Fought the Law. The law being corporate media and a chilling for global arms dealers and fossil fuel companies as it cheers on global war and planetary destruction. The invaders, alien beings from a dying planet, their destination, the Earth, their mission, to make it their world. It began with the landing of a craft from another galaxy. Now, David Vincent knows that the invaders are here, that they have taken human form. Somehow, he must convince a disbelieving world that the nightmare has already begun. That was the opening of a piece of 50s paranoia that ran on TV in the mid-60s. These creatures from another planet are just like us, but some of them have a deformity, a pinky finger that sticks straight up. Each week, architect Vincent tried to tell people that the planet was in danger, launched by a deadly foe that did not mind wiping out all life on Earth to make way for this alien life form from a planet whose inhabitants assumed human shape but showed no emotion. Unfortunately, the invaders still walk among us. They resemble ordinary politicians, except their rhetoric is much more bellicose. They threaten the rest of the planet and at every moment attempt to push war and halt peace. They have ordinary names like Newland, Sullivan, Blinken, and Biden. And you can tell them not by their extended pinkies, but by their use of the word democracy as an excuse for their desire for planetary dominance. 
They disrupt the flow of goods and the peaceful development of the resources of that part of the earth called the Global South in order to maintain their dominion. They are especially active in what was once called Eurasia. When they saw the possibilities for shared resources with Russia and Western Europe, they immediately went into disruptor mode in order to further promote their own oil and gas and maintain their dominance over their Caucasian vassals. Make no mistake about it, they are invaders. They themselves recently revealed they have launched 251 military interventions since the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991 and 469 since the invaders arrived in the U.S. in 1798. The greater contemporary danger, though, for these creatures, for whom peace is an alien concept, is the coming together to share resources and aid that is the mutual development of the landmass of Eurasia. This danger is led by China's Belt and Road Initiative, which despite its problems, aims to be a bridge between the developing countries and Europe, with the trade on this new Silk Road raising living standards all along the way. The aliens in the U.S. already reeling from their failure to decimate Russia in their Ukraine proxy war, as 87% of the world's population refuses to commit to the war have now set their sights on destroying the Belt and Road Initiative, which they see as a challenge to their mission to control the Earth, to keep it exclusively their world. What they pose as the alternative to the Chinese rising tide, which lifts all boats, is endless destruction and a kind of mafia protection racket. Either you are with us or against us, and if you are against us, we are coming for you, and you will be destroyed. This is the Biden, Blinken, Sullivan, Newland logic. And... As they clamor for a rules-based order, behind the braying lies the power of their alien weapons, now spread out in 800 military bases in over 80 countries, while China, the country they present as a major military threat, has one foreign base in one country. The way of life of this alien race is crumbling as their leader, who they call the Biden, walks the streets of Ukraine with a fake air raid siren to make it seem he is in danger. Well, they ignore their own people who are dying in a chemical spill, and then a purposeful explosion that may have decimated the drinking water and livelihoods of one-third of their own world, making it far more dangerous for the Biden to walk the streets of Palestine, Ohio, where he does not dare to go, than those of Kiev. David Vincent had to go person to person in the late 60s to warn about these alien invaders, as people refused to wake up to the danger they posed. It's far more difficult for the David, Diane, Denisha, and Damone Vincents of today because the aliens have captured all means of communication in their world and emit an endless stream of blather, utterly out of touch with the geopolitical realities of the world around them. Behind the wall, patrolled by their alien devices which censor all global perspective, they reward their lying media as just recently a daily newspaper now taken over completely by these creatures, the New York Times, was awarded the prestigious Polk Award for their coverage of the war in Ukraine, a completely one-sided and often inaccurate view of the war with almost no reporting on how and why the war started, and recently not one word written about the revelations that their alien masters blew up the Russian Nord Stream pipeline. Can the drive toward death and destruction by these alien creatures and their mad lust for power be stopped before they destroy the earth in their attempt to make it their world and to keep the rest of the world from rising? The architect David Vincent tried to spread the word, but it will take all of us to build a peaceful world and rid this one of this ever more dangerous alien menace. This is a preview of an upcoming episode of I Fought the Law, featuring prolific author and historian Gerald Horn, entitled, Me Tarzan, You Are Either With Us or Against Us, Joe Biden's Africa Policy. Thank you, Dennis Bro. And coming up next on the show... Deceitful quality to this character. It is fascinating. Hi, I'm Dr. Paula Bruce. I'm a clinical and forensic psychologist in Beverly Hills, California. I've been in practice for over 20 years, and I'm going to be talking today about a bunch of movies and trying to understand the characters, trying to understand the psychology behind the characters, and hopefully talk about it in a new and interesting way. If it was me dying on the sidewalk, you'd walk right over me. This portrayal of Joker in this way.
Is he crazy? Is this an example of a paranoid schizophrenic? And there's a question about whether what we're seeing in the film is really him uh, um, in a delusional process, or is it him in fantasy? What seems much more likely to me about this character is that what you're seeing is as a result of a complex PTSD, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Complex PTSD emerges out of developmental trauma, trauma that occurs from early in life, multiple traumas, repeated traumas, severe traumas that happen over a person's lifetime. One compounding the other. Yes, of course. Is Nathan your friend? My friend? I, yeah, I hope so. A good friend. What's happening in the scene is that um, he is with the AI robot that has got to pass a Turing test. What is fascinating about the Donald Wilson character, uh, they don't show it throughout the film, but you know that he has had probably a classic internet addiction kind of behavior, right? So we get to the scene where the lights go out in a very seductive way, pulls the Donald Gleason character closer to her. Seductive quality, deceitful quality to this character. What does this mean about the Turing test? It is fascinating that corrupted, deceptive, manipulative, seductive behavior that is the most human. I certainly hope that that's not true. In fact, I really don't believe in my heart that that's true. I'm just ahead of the curve. So what follows is this question about dominance and control. He, he pummels him, throws him across the room, he's violent. Yet, it is really clear that he holds no advantage. It is his capacity to manipulate, to coax, to seduce, to um, humiliate and all the things that he says to Batman as Batman pummels him. This is a man who um, in this scene uh, portrays sort of a classic psychopath. I'm going to jump and you're coming with me. No, I'm not. In this scene, uh, there's Batman, a question about how do you know if something is real? If I say it's real and you don't think it's real, how can one know what's real? Outside the confines of this um, world that they created, she's engaged in a perfectly rational, rational, reasonable question of challenging reality and believing that her reality, as it is articulated in that moment, might not be accurate, that it might be a non-reality when it appears to be a reality. In the real world, a person that slips from reality to non-reality um, is having a, psych a psychotic episode. I never laid a hand on him, goddammit. I didn't. What's happening in the scene is not real. So there's a question about what's happening with this character. Is he schizophrenic? Is this a hallucination? Is he, um, is this a paranoid schizophrenic? You know, he, he, he really demonstrates some uh, symptoms consistent with that. But I wonder if that's the most accurate diagnosis. I wonder whether this character, what he's really reflecting is substance-induced psychosis. And a lot of his, uh, delusional stuff starts to happen connected, like in this particular scene, which is quite pivotal, around the bar scene, around party, around merriment. Could have happened to anybody. And it was three goddamn years ago. So one of the things that you see with people who sometimes have substance abuse problems is their unwillingness to do their behavior. When Jack Nicholson is talking about his relationship with his son and the abuse uh, that he inflicted on his son, where his, his son dislocated his arm, 
he blames his son. Well, I didn't do it that hard, or it was only for a second, or it's because of what he did. He doesn't take responsibility. And that kind of classic um, unwillingness to acknowledge that one is out of control, to acknowledge that one is causing harm, is really reflective of someone that's in the throes of addiction. There's someone else in the hotel with us. There's a crazy woman in one of the rooms. She tried to strangle Danny. Are you out of your <laughs> mind? Don't do that. He can't handle reality. My name is Jade. Has Dr. Fletcher been getting our emails? This is what we have to do. We can... As in 1008, when Anna DePaula suffered the shock, he's most... shows uh, James McAvoy and his uh, portrayal of a character that inhabits 24 personalities, but what we call now as a dissociative identity disorder, which is born out of trauma. So DID, of course, exists on a spectrum. So you can have very, very, very subtle... Um, moments of dissociation that people experience to, I guess, this would be definitely one of the more significant and severe presentations, which I have personally never seen. Everything's fine now. Kevin, wake up, girl. Kevin is asleep. When Kevin cycles through his personalities and he's with Casey, she calls out his name as a way of uh, a, a way of activating right trying to call up that particular character and then you know um, the idea is that he's going to she's going to summon doesn't quite work out that and that's all we have time for today on arts express expression in the arts and if you'd like to express yourself too you can write to us at the radio goddess at gmail.com until next time this is prairie miller leaving the station